Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and today we welcome onto the show Commandant Retired Miriam McCann, Company Sergeant Retired Bernie Kelly and Corporal Paula Dowling. Commandant McCann was a member of the first integrated cadet class where men and women trained together while C.S. Kelly and Corporal Dowling were members of the first female recruit platoon in the Defence Forces. And today we're going to dis- discuss careers and the early days of women joining the Defence Forces. So very welcome on to the show, ladies. Thanks very much for, for agreeing to come on. Thank you. So I, we're going to run through kind of, I normally have a little bit of a formula where I like to ask people about their own backgrounds and about their own kind of experiences. So can, can we just maybe st- maybe starting with, with, your, with yourself, C.S. Kelly, can we just introduce yourself and just get a brief insight into your background, kind of where you're from and that kind of thing? Uh, Bernadette Kelly is my name and I come from Cashmore in County Waterford. And I'm married to John for 36 years and we have a son and a daughter. Um, and I've just recently retired from almost 40 years service. And you retired as a company sergeant serving in brigade headquarters in, in Collins Barracks in Cork. That's right. Yeah. That's a long, long and distinguished career. And, you, and yourself, uh, yourself, Paula? Uh, I'm still serving um, for another little while, almost not quite 60. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Donegal, served with the 28th Battalion, um, transferred down to Athlone about 13 years ago um, to continue my job with the PSS, the Personnel Support Service. I have one daughter. Unfortunately, my husband passed away um, a few years ago. Um, I am looking forward to retirement, but will certainly miss the Defence Forces. Excellent. And again, another long and, and distinguished career. And, and, and uh, your, yourself, uh, Colin McCann? Um, Miriam McCann, um, originally from Cork, um, joined the Defence Forces in 1980. Um, it was the year, the first year that they took women into the army. So um, I was always a bit of a tomboy and decided that this was the career for me, try something different. And um, I'm married uh, to Declan Rasmussen, who was also in the Defence Forces in Ordnance, and he left about three and a half years ago. Um, I retired from the Defence Forces to in 2015, and I now work in the Viva Stadium as their IT manager. Ah, wonderful. So... A lot of very varied backgrounds there as well, though. It's think to kind of a, an Ulster and a Munster flair. We don't have anybody from uh, from Leinster, but <laughs> <laughs> and there's myself as well, of course. Um, so back at that time in the early 1980s, it was obviously a very immediate recent thing that that women were being brought into the defence forces. And and can can we kind of get an insight into your reasoning for jo- for joining? Um, what what was what was your your motivation? Um, yourself, uh, Corporal Downing. The RDF, which would have been the FCA, and before that, the LDF. My, my father would have been heavily involved with that. Yeah, and um, reserve organisations. Every summer, he went to Finner Camp for his two-week camp, and we would have been out in a caravan out in Rusnaula, and sure as anything, he'd have his end to the camp. And I just thought, he's the boss of Finner Camp, obviously, even though he was yeah. a corporal <laughs> in the FCA. <laughs> um, he used to bring us down to the NCO's mess, and... I just thought this was great. That was my first introduction to the to the Defence Forces. Um, my brother, Eugene, um, subsequently joined the RDF and was uh, retired as a combatant. So sort of the flavour got a little bit more as I got older and seen what he was doing. Um, I'm, it's a very sad story to say that my inspiration to join the Army was MASH. 
I, <laughs> I had my interview, my army interview. I remember um, Captain Paddy Ryan asked me, why do you want to join the army? And I said, I want to be like the girls in MASH. So <laughs> not so sure that went down very well. But I think I really, at school, I wanted to be either a soldier or a solicitor. So I think by joining the army and going into records initially, I sort of got the taste for both. I was very much involved with all the DFRs and really got a taste for how the legislation worked. So I became a soldier and a semi What do they call them in the army? A barrack room lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was my inspiration really was um, that I wanted to be a soldier. So yeah. Fantastic. Maybe that's the honest answer. <laughs> and, and obviously you'd seen, you you had been around it to a certain extent, which which is, as you said, which, which you followed. As I said, um, the, the, the army in Lifford, I think, arrived, you know, we, whenever the, all the trouble started in Northern Ireland, Lifford Military Post, or the prior school Lifford at that time, was taken over by the army. Mm. Um, I was still at school, so we were probably looking at maybe, I think maybe 77, maybe even before that. So it was the first time we ever had soldiers who were in the army, uh, so soldiers who were in the town, yeah. you know, and we, they, were, they were visual. So maybe I, that gave me a little bit of inspiration as well. Yeah, fantastic. And and, and yourself, uh, yourself, Jessica? For me, um, I always had an interest in the Second World War and I loved watching films, particularly seeing the female um, women in, say, the British Army or the American Army. I loved all that. Um, and then a big influence was my uncle. He joined the army in 1939 during the emergency and he stayed in it for 21 years here in the Curragh. Yeah. So um, loved listening to his stories and I had an uncle who was in the Royal Navy and again he didn't speak a lot about his experience because I think it was quite difficult for him but yet you know there was great pride in him when he'd show his medals or his pictures. Yeah. Um. And I remember from at home, um, the Land Rovers used to pass our house. They'd be checking the a mast up in the mountain nearby. And I'd always run out. I know the days they'd be passing and I'd be <laughs> running out to have a look at the Land Rovers going by. Um, and then I joined the civil defence, the local civil defence at home and the first aid uh, section of it. And I loved the fact that I had a uniform. Yeah. So there was something, the, the uniform attracted me, I think. And then I met John, my husband, who was uh, serving in the 4th Battalion um, when I was 18. And he used to speak a lot about it, but it sounded very interesting at the same time, you know, that he was driving trucks and whatever. He was a driver on the 4th Battalion. Um, and then uh, when there was a mention of taking women into the army, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe this is something I could do. (laughs) But from then on, John never said anything at all because he felt that um, his experience would definitely be very different to mine and he didn't want to influence me in any way. Right, wow. Which, you know, was very good of him, really. Yeah, that's very considerate of him, yeah. He never coloured my view on it. Yeah. And uh, he felt we'd be treated differently. And, of course, we were joining the Women's Service Corps at the time. That's what it was starting out as. So uh, he felt it would be a totally different experience for me. So he didn't really want to have any influence in that. Yeah, of course, yeah. And and maybe give you incorrect expectations or something, I suppose, at the time. But I do feel the civil defence was really what helped me to get into the army because I remember during my interview that that was one of the, the, the questions that, you know, when I told them I was in it, they wanted to know a lot about that. And I always felt it was a good... 
a it, good thing for going for me you know there's a good there's a good common theme here as well of, of like both of you have had experience of, of obviously indirectly for, for, for you uh, Paul just as regards the reserve organisations mm-hmm. and the civil defence are t- two kind of organisations of people outside kind of full time um, defence forces or, or similar um, you know it's, it's good experience to show that, that influence yeah and uh, what yourself uh, um, <clears throat> I think when I did my leave insert I went to UCC and um, so I was studying there for the year and then there started um, rumours that they were going to take women into the defence forces and but then they were saying that you had to have a degree um, for the first eight girls that came in in 1980. And so that kind of ruled me out because I was only in first year. And um, then there was another announcement um, in maybe April, May, June of that 1980 that they were going to take uh, undergraduates. So, uh, as I said, I was always kind of a bit of a tomboy and, you know, wanted to do something different. And my brother... Um, my oldest brother was in the army at the time and um, he was probably a little bit worried that his sister was <laughs> going to come in. And, um, and uh, so anyway, I applied for it and um, uh, managed to be selected and I was delighted. But it was kind of that, you know, it was so different. Like there was it was the last place that women really hadn't kind of gotten into. Um, and it sounded so exciting and, you know, to be the first in and like a trailblazer, I suppose, in some ways. And uh, so very excited to be selected. And um, and then there was numerous days in the cadet school that you went, what did I <laughs> sign up for? I think we all had those days. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So that was how I ended up there. Um, and, and as regards like actually joining, I, I presume you, was it still for, for, for the cadets? Was it still an interview in the Cora or was it a... You could um, select where you wanted. It was the same, you know, the normal cadet procedure. So you could select your initial interview. It could be Cork or the West or Dublin, wherever you were based. But for some reason, I think I had my two interviews in Dublin and um, the final interview in Brickens with the medical and... Um, so and, you know, quite a daunting process, you know, with the final interview board, there was, I think, five people on the interview board and you're walking into the room and it's very stressful. And but um, yeah, so you could select where you wanted the initial interview, but the second interview was in Dublin. OK, and, and you, were your experiences the same or? Um... For, for me, uh, my interview was in Kicking Barracks in Clanmail. Ah. And I remember going to the gate of the barracks and the men on the gate, they had a potbelly stove lighting and it was really warm and cosy <laughs> and they were really nice and I thought, oh, this will be great. <laughs> and then I was taken over to the room and from what I remember, I think there was only one officer that interviewed me and it went really well and I would have been a very timid and quiet person so going for an interview was a huge thing. And... Um, he was asking me all about the civil defence, so that made it very easy for me then. And when the interview was over, he said, oh, thanks very much. Now that's great. And I said, oh, you know, it's great. I was so nervous. And uh, he said, well, so was I. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that'll tell you how new it was to everybody. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. That was the, what I remember from it. And what about yourself, Corporal? Um, I did my interview in Rockhill House. Um, oh, wow. And I remember my, my father brought me down for it. And I remember going past the guard room would have been on the left hand side as you walked in. And this was I think this was the very first time you realized 
that the eyes of the world were going to be upon you every time you walked in barracks, probably for the first 10 years, every time yes. you went into barracks. Um, but uh, yeah, I went in, I, my, my interview, I think there was two, I remember, as I say, Captain Paddy Ryan, I would have been, I think he retired as a commandant, but I would have known him all my career because of, again, he would have had the connection with my family. So my initial introduction to him was, is that slim I see outside? Because that's what my father's nickname was. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought this is a really good start to this interview. <laughs> um, I had also that very year had done an interview for nursing and an interview for the, for the guards. So the army won out and I think it was the, it was the best decision, I think. I think I made a better soldier than a nurse for guard. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was... It was my first time, as I said, ever to walk into a barracks and, and feel like this was real, you know. So at this point, you've all, you've all gotten in, you've been accepted into the Defence Forces and, and, and you turn up at barracks. Can you give us an insight into what your first few days and, and nights were like, how you were feeling, if you were anxious about the process of training or were you excited about getting into it or, or, or how, did it, how did it play out for you? Um, for me, I think... It was all a bit of a blur because I don't think I gave a whole lot of thought to what I was actually going to be doing when I got in. You know, it was all the getting in bit. And um, there was two other girls with me, uh, Mary Daly and Pauline O'Connell. And then there was 40 um, shaven head <laughs> young lads, like, you know, 18, 19, whatever with us. And, you know, nobody knew what we were doing. There was a few lads had been in the FCA and they knew how to march and they knew how to stand at ease and the rest of us were clucking hens. We didn't know what end was up. And my first few days, I think, the memory is of everybody shouting. You know, the you were shouting, get up the stairs, get downstairs, get on parade, get off parade. And we changed clothes yeah. so many times. <laughs> like it was fatigues, you know, your working dress, another dress. I mean... That's what I remember. It was all shouting and roaring and changing clothes. And uh, then once we all kind of got issued with our kit and um, and that, and then the bed packs, making the bed packs, that was just matching up the, the lines on the blankets <laughs> and all this kind of stuff went on. And you were kind of going, what am I doing here? And then you got issued with your rifle um, and then you changed chained the rifle to the radiator in your bedroom. So you took it apart, the breech block and all that was taken out, and then you changed the, <laughs> changed the <laughs> rifle to the radiator. So you've going to bed at night and your rifle chained to the <laughs> thing in your bed block and all these strange things. Yeah, these very alien things, yeah. yeah. So that was it. And then you started getting your um, timetable would be issued you know, the Friday <coughs> for the following week and then you'd be able to look down and then sort of some sort of order and semblance of things and you began to understand what they were shouting at and um, then the drill and the marching and it was like starting all over again being taught how to walk talk dress yeah. everything you know so, so it was like a complete relearning of everything that they wanted you to be they so, break it down to build you well, back up was, again was exactly. the was the kind of mantra <laughs> even when I, when I like when I was joining it was, yeah. that's what they were going yeah. to do like yeah that was it. they retrained you yeah, you know, and obviously so. the bed blocks are in the days before duvets. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember seeing it, uh, this random collection of different blankets that Jeez, go in oh different no. places, and how are you supposed to know where they go? Matched up, the yeah. lines oh. had to be matched up, and everything, and um, it was just really very strange for the first while, just to get new, new used to this new life. You know, I don't know what your experience, something similar. Or 
Yeah, um, I remember being very nervous about going and I'd never been away from home before and travelling to the Coral was like going to America. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd been in Dublin once in my <laughs> lifetime. So, and it was a huge rift because I lived at home with my mother um, and my younger sister. My father was after dying and my mother relied on me a lot. So when I got the phone call to say that I had a place in the army, um, I rang her straight away and I said, how do you feel about it? Will I take it or won't I? And she said, I won't stand in your way. It's what you want to do. And once I got to go ahead from her, but it was very, I was very nervous. Yeah. You know, and uh, arriving in the Cora, um, I was a week later than the rest of the girls. There was Paula Cooley and myself. We travelled together to the Cora because uh, I had to give notice at work. And um, what were you working at at, at the time? Uh, I was working in an office in Murray Kitchens in Yall. Ah. And when we landed in the Cora, the first person I saw, I think it was Olive Reddy, and she had crutches. So she was after hurting her oh leg, God. you know, in that first yeah. week of training. And I thought, oh, my God, I wanted to go home. <laughs> you know, it was it was nerve wracking. Of course, really. it was alien world. Yeah, yeah, it was. And going into um, a billet with the other girls and. You know, wondering what were they going to be like? What, what was it all going to be like? It was all so new. It was frightening, really. Yeah. 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 Run along getting used to everything. And <laughs> the girls were brilliant from, from day one. Like, just, I think the bond we oh, formed strong. was so <laughs> strong. Even Paula and myself travelling up in the minibus. Like, we still ring each other every day. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that bond was formed that day. And the twenty second of June, nineteen eighty one, and it's still going strong. And it's it's great. It's, it's I think a lot of us who, uh, who have served in the defence forces would say that that is one of, a big feature of your time is those those bonds you make with with the people that you train with in particular. Yeah. Uh, what about yourself, Corporal? You were obviously in the same in the same. Actually, we're different because, as I said, they took us in on the fifth of June, and it was as I was just talking about earlier. It was a complete and utter fluke, because um, I got the phone call. And I think it was watching Top of the Pops. <laughs> and it was called down to Lifford Barracks. Um, Commandant Tag Crow was there at the time. And um, I went in and he said, this is a great opportunity. You know, what do you think? And I was all for it. Went, my brother Eugene had brought me down. We went back up home and my parents were like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> we just let you do the interview. We thought that was going to be enough. <laughs> They said, no, you're not going. Um, but then, you know, they changed their mind. They said, OK, we'll let you go. Uh, to this day, I'm always convinced they were sure I was going to be, you know, marauded by women and by men. They weren't sure which one to worry most about, <laughs> that I was going to be going into, you know, a, a 40 women or that I was going to be surrounded by, you know, 9,000 men. Um, so we we actually were attested on the 5th of June. And as I was saying, halfway through our attestation, we were interrupted um, and a sergeant had told um, the commandant who was attesting us, you shouldn't have attested them. This is a mistake. This wasn't supposed to happen until next week. Um, and he went, well, I've half of them done. I'm going to have to do the rest of them now. Um, so we were actually sent, there was a general election held the following week and we were actually allowed to go back home for a few days to, to vote. Yeah. Anybody who was over 18 was allowed to go home to vote. Um, but I remember something 
that happened the day after we were tested. We were sent over to the, the hospital block. This is where the females were going to be best protected, I think, from the marauding men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we were, this is where we're staying upstairs. And I remember setting my alarm in my head for half six, thinking that the army, this is the only thing I ever saw in the films. It was, everyone gets up really early in the morning. And I went round all the doors and knocked at all the girls' doors saying, you know, we have to get up because it's half six and we're in the army. Of course, there was nobody else up in the barracks. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody was awake at half six in the morning. Um, but it was, it was, I think we were very lucky that, you know, we were given that time to bond even before we went to, down to meet the other girls. Yeah. Um, they took us down to get kit before the other girls got their kit. Um, and another story that I remember was that I remember we, we were taken in the back of a truck. Why they didn't send us out in a transit, I don't know. We were taken down in the back of a truck because we were probably recruits. But I was wearing a pencil line skirt that was very fashionable back in the day. <laughs> a velvet pencil line skirt. And I remember, as some people say, it's hard enough getting off the back of a truck yes. with boots and trousers on you. But when I climbed back off the back of the truck, the slit on the skirt went from where, where modesty was... <laughs> So it went, yeah, I tore my skirt. So yeah, oh, I'm not sure that didn't look good either. <laughs> but back in Athlone, they decided that the best uniform they could put us into was uh, fatigues. Anyone who's old enough to remember fatigues. But to make us look like women, they decided we should wear leather belts. So they cinched our waists <laughs> and then gave us berries that were not good. And there's actual photographic evidence of that does exist, of the first women looking like I have no idea what. But uh, yeah, we had... We had training in, in, in Athlone before we hit the Curra. We were, they marched us around the barracks, walked us around the barracks, I'm sure, in single file. But You were, you were made to feel some semblance of the kind of... Was, yeah, I'm sure we looked terrible, but we were still walking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just just on that, I suppose, as well, the instructors and kind of the, the giving out kit and... Like what? What? What was? What was the atmosphere like in training? Was it a case that the instructors had no real idea what they were supposed to really do, or or was there what what what, what was it like? Well, we weren't too bad because we were the integrated class. So, you know, they had been training cadets for years. So the syllabus really didn't change. The only thing they, because they changed quite rapidly from the Women's Service Corps. The first eight girls went off to the UK. Well, four of them went off to the UK and they trained with the Women's Service Corps of the British Army, who were a separate corps completely, who were in support roles, admin and were non-combatant. And then... Within six months, they had changed and they decided we'd be integrated. I think that was really a more practical reason because they didn't have the resources to be running two separate courses for three women. So they integrated us. And that was a great decision, really, because it meant that we trained with our colleagues. And at the end of the training, then we had that expectation that we were equal and that we were as qualified as our main co- as our male colleagues, and so we it enabled us to kind of um, push ahead to be allowed to do things when we were commissioned, when people weren't you know quite ready to let us do it. We had that um, belief that we were equal and that we were equally as well trained as the men, and that we should be able to do it. So um, for the most part, the training was exactly the same, but they decided for some strange reason that the light infantry support weapons, the GPMGSF, the 60 millimetre mortar and the anti-tank, that we wouldn't do those. So instead, we would do deportment and makeup classes. 
Jeez. Oh my god. That's so, so ridiculous at the at so, passing of the years. Now I have to say that I have used the makeup tips far more often than I have used the sixty millimeter mortar in my thirty or forty years since. But that was for some reason they decided that and our cadet our class captain was a man called Tommy Doyle, whose wife was an air hostess with their lingus. So she was brought down to give us the grooming tips. Now it was very actually very yeah. very good tips. But so we ended up doing this ridiculous thing <laughs> in the middle of the cadet training and they couldn't quite make up their mind whether we should do IS training, the internal security training either. So I think that was kind of a little bit iffy. But other than that, we did the exact same training. So from that point of view, we didn't have any difficulty with the training. Yeah. When we were commissioned, then that was a whole other <coughs> different story. But um, and I'm not sure with the girls whether you actually did the same recruit training syllabus as the males. We did. I, I remember firing five rounds in the GPMG. That was our training on the GPMG, I think, yeah. during recruitment. Yeah. I certainly <laughs> remember firing it yes. and loving the idea of doing it. Um, I remember being terrified firing my first round from the FN rifle. You know, that this was actually live ammunition and they were letting us <laughs> do this. <laughs> but um, I think they weren't ready for us at all, yeah. you know, and I... I don't know what, how much thought went into our training, but they tried to keep it as... But you would have had uh, some of the first girls training you, wouldn't you, Marie O'Donoghue? Yeah, no, they weren't really on. involved. Right. Yeah. You know, it was all, we had all male, yeah. male instructors, but um, I remember Sergeant Morrissey, our platoon sergeant, Fenton Morrissey, and uh, we ended up calling him Daddy Morrissey <laughs> because he did look out, look out for us. He was... He could be cross or whatever, but cross. Um, that was a word to be used. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was good to us, really. It know. was. Yeah. Oh he my was goodness! Fantastic, yeah. Yeah. You see, I think the 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 male instructors as well. They really didn't know kind of what how to react with this because they either kind of looked at you and thought of their daughter mm-hmm. and said, oh, "She couldn't be doing that to them," you know, or else they were kind of the other extreme when they were very. You Very know, much so. They were nearly kind of going the opposite way yeah. for us. But you were um, you were very lucky if you got the the guys who had the foresight to see, you know, that this was a, a new challenge, but we had to be trained properly. But we were we were different, I suppose, to the male recruits. You know, we were much more compliant, I think, weren't we really, you know? Definitely. Yeah, terrified. So, yeah, we didn't yeah. do anything wrong. No. Yeah, no. But, but we did do two weeks of poise and etiquette. We, we we were we passed out of three stars because they obviously didn't want us back once they finished their <laughs> training. Um, so instead of us passing out as two stars, they did two weeks of a two to three star course where we were taught how to not smoke before they gave the president's speech. I remember that. But whenever the president's toast, would <laughs> well, that toast, be right? Yeah, the toast, we were yeah. not allowed to smoke before that. Yes. Um, how to sit with your legs if you're having your picture taken, how to sit with your legs crossed properly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were t- two weeks of poison etiquette. So oh, that's an interesting poison, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> they said they still did when I was when I was training as a kid. They still did um, that, some of that etiquette training, yes. the, um, yeah. the how to put, put fork goes and that yes. kind of thing. Yeah. But um, no, the, the word poison had been removed from uh, from the <laughs> syllabus at that point. Um, so yeah, so so obviously things things have changed an awful lot since since then. But but it's an interesting one to say that they weren't really 
ready for as you as you said they weren't really ready for you. Uh, and you mentioned earlier like receiving your your kit and equipment, and obviously the difficulties you said Corporal, only with regards to like the fatigues and the bad berets and things. But <laughs> what, can you give us an insight, all of you, into the sort of Katie Richard in comparison to later in your in later in your careers and into the more kind of I'd modern? I'd love to, to let you know about <laughs> our. Um, <laughs> Pieces of kit <laughs> <laughs> that should be in a museum today. We were oh. issued with tennis skirts and frilly knickers. <laughs> wow! And worse than that, we were made wear them <laughs> with and boots. With our boots and go running around the cora <laughs> in the morning. Wow! So there's there's one. To run in the we did yeah. as a punishment. We were made do it. Yeah. And Marie Flynn looking like hot lips hooligan. Yeah. <laughs> along with us and there we were I don't know what we looked like but yeah frilly knickers little tennis skirts white t-shirts and boots and when I was cleaning out my locker in recent weeks I was cleaning out my locker you know before I retired and there was my little frilly knickers no. and, you still oh my and my tennis skirt <laughs> so should probably, you should probably adapt them into the museum in Collins Barracks I'd say um, so, yeah. wow. I could not say that. I mean, but we had to train in uh, the fatigues. Yes, yeah. that's, that's what we had. They were like boiler time. suits. Yeah. yeah. Know, and and the shirt underneath it, which we'd have to starch the collars. Yes. I remember starching them with Robin starch. Yeah, that's right. That's right yeah. See, Bjorgensen had designed the the uniforms, and of course, he had designed them for six foot models <laughs> who weighed about six stone and who never moved you know so we suddenly had we had a working dress that was like a Chinese oh, outfit it had uh, yeah. no collar and it was actually very comfortable it had two slits at the side and buttons down the front and trousers but then the shirt sat up on top of the collar so you were with the tie <laughs> so it was very restrictive and then the SD number one um, the again the the tunic was buttoned right up to here and the shirt again sitting up and then a belt around the centre. Um, so we had no trousers with SD number one. So when you were out on parade with the guys, there was no uniformity because we were in skirts and they were all in trousers. And it wasn't until much later, I think maybe around 1990, that skirts or the trousers came in with SD number one and they changed the design of the tunic. Yeah. So it was more, more similar to the men's with slightly feminine touches. And I think that was because Mary... Robinson became president in 1990 and she was the commander in chief. So now they wanted females, they allowed females to do guards of honour. And then you had some of the girls went into um, the cavalry corps and they became the motorcycle escort commanders. Remember Aideen McNamara, I think, was probably the first one of that. And so they had to have the trousers and the bikes and the tunics had to be more, you know, flexible. Um, so there was a lot of kind of issues. I remember getting issued with the bull's wool uh, the underliners that you'd wear under it. I mean, uh, they were very warm, but like you'd be itching for a week, yeah. you know, after them. And um, but uh, there was another problem then with the boots because, like, one of the girls had a size four, and sure, no, no man in the army had a size four, so they couldn't get boots. So then they'd have to go off and get a special. They may, might allow you to go out and buy a pair of boots yourself. So there was all these kind of little clothing issues. Um, but gradually then the uniform kind of improved. But for the first recruitment, it was ridiculous. It was like, awful. You know. Crazy. Awful, yeah. And am I right in saying we didn't get the, the little hats until after we passed out? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had berries. Berries passing out. Yeah. yeah. 
But the uniform, the number one uniform was lovely. Yes. Yeah. The court shoes and yes. the handbag yeah. and the gloves. We got the big handbags then. And I always remember arriving. I was posted to the third battalion and uh, Commandant Jerry Harney was the adjunct. He was captain at the time. Very nice man. And he was bringing me around the bloods, you know, first female ever in the bloods and the history of the unit. And we were walking around and we had gotten issued with this big brown handbag. Yeah. So I had my handbag on because I thought you had to wear the handbag. <laughs> and like I was probably, you know, 19 or something, never probably had a handbag, you know, in Civvy Street. But and eventually, anyway, after about an hour going around the barracks, he said to me and um, he says, the handbag, um, you know, and I stole, yeah, look, my handbag. And he said, and do you have to wear it everywhere? <laughs> And I was kind of saying, well, he said, if you want, you can leave it, you know, in the office. And I was like, oh, crazy. So <laughs> the handbag was dumped. But I'd say he was mortified, me going around with the handbag, handbag around. <laughs> the big handbag, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as regards, like, say, tactical equipment and that kind of stuff, um, in comparison to saying no, when you have, like, your battle vest and your, and your, um, your backpack and all that kind of stuff, I, I presume it was a much kind of more primitive setup. Yeah, a very primitive <laughs> setup. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was the old webbing. Yes, it was very and very old webbing at that. Yeah, and very stiff. You oh, know, yeah, and we, trying to yeah. manipulate it. Um, in the cadet school, we used to have, um, you know, inspections. So you'd have to have all your pouches squared off. Mm-hmm. You know, so ideally, I think you were supposed to have kind of cardboard in them. You know, so they'd sit out straight. But you know, needs must like. You know, we used to get sandwiches at nine o'clock at night time. So if you were really stuck, they'd stuff the sandwiches <laughs> in to try and make the, the pouches stand out. And yeah, they were. But I mean, that was just everybody had that equipment. Yeah. You know, yeah. The webbing yeah, was very exactly. old. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't just us. <laughs> no. So with regard to the training itself, like, did you find training difficult? Was was Were there real challenges? Were there parts that you found really tough? Uh, for me, uh, the physical side of it, the running and that, because I was never into sports or anything so I did find that difficult everything else I found very interesting but um, it took me a while to get used to the runs and that and there was a lot there was a like similar to today there was a, there was a lot of robust kind of physical training ongoing yeah I remember us doing the obstacle course trying to do it <laughs> and I remember doing a forced route match yeah and finding that really difficult and you know not being able to catch my breath and I just like I didn't even own a pair of runners you know, so yeah. I was never, I played P, whatever P we had at school with the little rubber dollies, those little plastic shoes, I suppose, really. <laughs> so um, the physical side for me, but everything else, I loved the weapon training, actually. Yeah. And um, I loved the marching. Yeah. Fantastic. And what about yourself? Uh, um, no, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, you know, my, I had two younger brothers, so it was you know, an, an opportunity to just be really a tomboy, I think, and that's, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, the only problem I would have had was getting home, because obviously from Donegal, it was a bit of a traipse to try and get across to the Dublin, and then from Basaras, and maybe another three, three and a half hour journey, and then by the time you get home, it was nearly time to turn around and come back again. Yeah. So I'd say that's probably the travelling, and that so it still applies today to people that are posted, it's the travelling home that would be the, the biggest yeah. issue during recruit training, yeah. I suppose we were the issues for us um, because we were the integrated. So for the runs and that sort of thing, we were out with the lads and uh, when Mary, I'd say myself, would have found the runs a little bit difficult for us. Um, but other than that, like the weapons training was, you know, easy. We found that easy, like any of the classroom stuff. Um, 
that was fine. Um, the tactics were fine. I loved marching as well, you know, and when the band were out, God, it was like really <laughs> sense of pride. Yeah. And, you know, um, so in general, the training was fine and it was all very, very tough, but you were all in it together. So it made it easier. You know, there was 43 of us training. So it wasn't that you were on your own. Everybody was in the same boat. Everyone was being shouted at. Everyone was, you know, finding it hard. Everyone was tired. But you had a great sense of camaraderie. And um, and I think that has lasted throughout the years. Um, so from my point of view, I think the training was probably the best of times in the army. Yeah. Because it was the most intense experience um, where you where you formed and kept lifelong yeah. friends and the experience that we got um, anything else in life that you had to face you were able to do it because you developed such a resilience um, and you knew that you could cope with whatever else life threw yeah. threw at you after that training. I would agree hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, we were set up for life yeah. from our training. Fantastic, and, and just from your own. From your own perspective of Connacht McCann, just as regards being the first integrated um, cadet class with, with with males, was was that like, was it a bit of a strange start or, or was it or was it immediately you were all feeling that camaraderie and you were all in it together? Yeah, because for everybody of the 57th class, we were all new, so we didn't know any different. Like the lads didn't know what it was like to be just on a male class. So we were all first timers, if you like. And um, and in general, most of the lads were really good and very supportive. And, you know, everybody had sisters or, you know, mothers, you know, so they were used to that. And some of them would be very protective now uh, and then others maybe not so much. But, you know, you just got on with it. Yeah. And because there was, I suppose, three girls as well, we had a little bit of kind of girl support ourselves as well which was very important yeah. and so having completed training and, and gone out to your various units you, you might actually just let me know where you actually were sent directly after training as well because I know people have had kind of varied sort of careers um, how, how did you feel did you did you find it because as you said the training and for, for a lot of us I, I can relate that to the training is sort of it is the best of times at time, at time, and some days you're going why, am, why have I done this and then other times and then when you leave it you kind of look back and you go I had such purpose when I was when I was doing that. Um, did did you did you miss the classes or did you? Um, um, I know that the day that we were leaving the Cora, um, our hearts were broken to be breaking up. Yeah. Because of the bond that we'd formed, I think you'd agree. Um, I know we cried most of the way to Cork. There were ten of us uh, posted to Cork to Collins Barracks, and um, you know it was a fierce wrench leaving the other girls and when would we see each other again because of that bond that we had formed in the the months that we were here in the Curragh. Um Going into Collins Barracks then was a whole new experience and the only way I could describe it was getting out of the transit in the barracks and it was like the valley of the squinting windows. <laughs> I'd say every window in the barracks was full of people looking out at the women. And we were marched around in our number ones in high heels and our handbags <laughs> in orientation of the barracks. And we were met by the orderly officer who told us where we could and couldn't go in the barracks and outside of the barracks. All these pubs in the city were named that we weren't to attempt to go near. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was, it was very daunting. Yeah. 
What was the reason for that? It was just... They were minding us, I yeah. think. They were afraid that anything would happen to us. I think that, that was the, the biggest issue. That's what I feel anyway. Um, and then anyone that wanted to go home could go home that evening. So I was only an hour away, so I, I went home. But I know the other girls were given more lectures later on in the <laughs> evening about <laughs> what they could and couldn't do. And they had done up a block, block 11 in Collins Barracks for us. And it was painted out of the new and uh, new line on the floors and that. So like the accommodation was good. But I do remember walking in the door and it was a dark October evening and th- the dampness running down the walls. Yeah. And we were so sad, uh, you know, as well that it didn't help. And we were brought over to the dining hall for something to eat. And Shawnee Lynch was the sergeant, God be good to him now. And he had a table set out for the ten of us. And there was a tablecloth on it. And he stood at the end of the table and he put his hands up on the table and lifted up his shoulders. And he said, if you think you're going to be treated like this every day, you have another thing coming. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our introduction to Collins Barracks. Fantastic. And was it down to the 4th Infantry Battalion you were sent? No, you see, we weren't allowed into the infantry battalions at all. Ah, right. Um, this is pre, pre-combatant, pre when non-combatant yeah, was. Ah, right. Exactly. Uh, so um, I was sent to uh, command headquarters. And um, some of the girls went to transport. And there was a couple of girls went to records. So, yeah, and believe it or not, I stayed in command quarters until the 2nd of January, 2021. (laughs) I never moved. Yeah. Yeah. Where I had, when I encountered myself in my career in 2016, when you were were working inside the Brigade Headquarters office there, yeah. yeah. I started out in the command QM's office and I loved that. And I thought that's the side of the army that I'd stay with. But um, the CS had other ideas. And so after a couple of years, they brought me from Q to A. And I remained in A until I retired. As from Q, we were talking there about the kind of logs versus sort of... Logs, administration. Yeah. 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 So that was... uh, I loved it from day one. And I got a fantastic welcome into command headquarters. I was definitely one of the lucky ones, I think. Um, I was with an older group of people uh, who took me under their wing and minded me and treated me very, very well. That's fantastic. That, I mean, that that's a great kind of posit- positive story as well, like, you know. Um, and, your, and yourself, uh, Carver Dunning, where, where were you sent directly? At Lone, Custom Breaks at Lone. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got the white tablecloth too. We had a very similar experience. Um, we had... They set up a table in the dining hall for us. This is where we, and we had our own waiter and we had real salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> Crazy stuff. You know, if they were thinking about integrating us, all of a sudden here were the women arriving and they were being treated completely different. So I think that lasted about for about four weeks where we were being given the special treatment and, and then they decided, no, we shouldn't have It's better than us. We got one night. <laughs> but our accommodation was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Um, they had done up, a K block for us and we had curtains from Arnott's and we had tumble dryers and washing machines and hand dryers that, electric hand dryers that had only been invented apparently back in the 80s um, absolutely brilliant time we also had our own runner who used to fill the turf and light the fire for us in the morning in the sitting room you were very <laughs> well treated <laughs> 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 but this, this is you know 
know, this is the crazy stuff that because no one knew how to treat the women. Yeah. You know, we we were being treated completely different. And to this day, I think that's why a lot of us are a little bit different. You know what I mean? To 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 how to how we are um, or to how other soldiers are. But uh, whenever we came back to Athlone again, we had been given our um, our units in the corral before we got, I think, before we got back to Athlone. So Trisha Kelly went to military police. You know, we had girls who went to the the depot. I went up to records with, a, with another girl, Ronnie. And it probably was the best place they could have sent me because the CS there was just a guru when it came to administration. And it was like, I, had, I don't know, I must, I had, like I had died and gone to heaven. This is a man who taught me how to read DFRs. Imagine being, having, imagine being able to sit down and reading. He'd give me a DFR to read and I'd read through it. And I'd be like asking, quite, what about this and what about this? So that's where I got my absolute love for administration. And I, I pretty much stayed in administration until I joined the PSS. But I think the, having all that administration knowledge has helped me with the PSS. When people come to me, I'm actually able to recall very quickly. Well, wait a minute, now we see there's a day for that'll do whatever, whatever, whatever. So, uh, yeah. And I spent a year in records. And then Donegal called me home. I really, really, really wanted to go back home again. So I applied for Lifford which was where I lived, and they sent me to Rock Hill, <laughs> which is I where see. I didn't live. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I was in Rock Hill, I think, for about a year as well, and then I got transferred back to Lifford, so I was just a stone's throw then from home. Wow. Oh, so you managed to get close to home, which is, which was, yeah. which is good. Yeah. And yourself? Uh, so um, we, were all, we were only allowed to apply for infantry, so which was the year before um, Bernie and Paula. So... As you can see, things changed very rapidly yeah. and we were non-combatant, but we could only go to the most competent corps in the Defence Forces, which was infantry. So uh, there was so many kind of odd things. So I was sent to the third battalion and um, that was fantastic. It was the Bloods, you know, a very special unit and the first female Blood. And uh, I went down there the first day and they the officers and the NCOs and staff were very welcoming. And I was very lucky because um, the adjutant was a really um, nice uh, captain who, you know, was very positive and very pro-females. And because we had done the integrated training, you know, I thought, well, I can do whatever. I can do whatever any other lieutenant is, is doing. And I remember the uh, OC headquarters company saying to me about a week after I came, are you allowed to go to the range? And I was saying, of course I'm allowed to go to the range. I fired and I'm, you know, great shot with this. And and he was like, yeah, but are you allowed? Like, oh, you know, like, and I was saying, of course. And that was the start of it. So every single thing you had to say, yes, I am qualified. Yes, I can go. Oh, I don't know. We'll have to check and see if you're allowed to go. And it really depended on who you met, whether they kind of supported you or didn't support you. But um you know, the third battalion was great and uh, I went down with them, you know, doing like shoots in the Glen and but we weren't allowed to do orderly officer. Another anomaly. Don't know why. There was something about uh, that there was some EU legislation that you couldn't, women couldn't work for 24 hours. And so that was a huge issue because as you'll know yourself, um, like nobody wants to be doing orderly officer. But here was uh, me, a second lieutenant, sitting in the barracks and captains 
senior captains having to do orderly officer while I was swanning because I couldn't <laughs> do it. And that was a great source of resentment, I think, from the lads as well. Well, to we us. certainly and didn't help. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and we wanted to do it. And we were trying to remember actually when we were allowed to do it. I think it was kind of the late, maybe 80s, that we were eventually allowed to do orderly officer. But um, and as Paula and Bernie were saying, it depended where you were sent, how you were treated, because they really didn't know how to react. Um, so I stayed in the third battalion for um, a few years, but I was the first to go to university because the other two girls in my class were already graduates. Yeah. So I was commissioned in April and in September I headed off to Galway. Now I had had a great summer in the Curra. You know, there was like seven messes all operational at the time. There was garden parties all over the place. Great crowd of young like officers around the place. Sure, it was fabulous. And then I headed off to Galway and I was the first female officer to go to UCG and you had to go in uniform. So day one, standing on the concourse in UCG and everybody stopping and looking and saying, what is that person? <laughs> They'd never seen a female officer. Like at this stage, there was only 11 of us in the whole Defence Forces. Yeah. And there was no recruits hadn't come in at that stage. So that was a, a, a mad experience, you know, trying to settle in there and get people to kind of actually talk to you and... Um, but of course, after a few months, we settled in and USAC was phenomenal and UCG was phenomenal. And we'd come back then every Christmas, Easter and summer to uh, the 3rd Battalion. And uh, um, but it was all a kind of a series of firsts, you know, um, all of the girls were sent. Uh, you were very lucky, I suppose, because there was the 38 of yep. ye and you were rarely sent where there was only one or two of you, you know, you had good, uh, support in numbers, I suppose. But like a lot of my colleagues would have been sent one to the 1st Battalion on her own, one to the 6th yeah. Battalion on mm -hmm. her own, one to the 12th Battalion, one to Clanmel, one to the 4th Battalion, one to the 3rd Battalion. And you were literally like this isolated, you know, and you had no role models. You know, there was nobody senior to yeah. you, female senior to you. Um, so that was kind of difficult. And we were just saying that for the first 10 years from 1980 to 1990, there was probably less than 80 women in the whole Defence Forces. Wow. For 10 years. They were the only recruit platoon in that 10 years. Because it was, yeah, it had it was, it was the one and then it was a big moratorium on yeah. for. Yeah. So the second one came in 1990 and I actually trained that recruit platoon. But up to that, there was less than 80 women in the Defence Force for 10 years. So it's pretty. Yeah, I remember... Uh, my first duty, I was a sergeant doing my first duty. And it was very daunting because I should have been doing it since I was a private and you'd know what you yeah. had to do inside out. And here you were as guard commander or stand to commander and you were kind of thrown in at the deep end. And we were fighting to do the duties and yeah. often asked ourselves after why. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted yeah. to, we didn't want to be different. Yes. We wanted to be accepted. And, and it caused a lot of resentment. It did. It, it did lads. indeed. That was the biggest yeah. thing. You know, they could cope with all the other stuff, but it was the duties and it became such an issue. And we were all, not that we were dying to do duty, but you just wanted to be treated the same. Y yeah, you did. That yeah. they'd, you know, have the respect for you then. Yeah, of course. And, and obviously... The Defence Force is quite a hierarchical organisation. So when you're when you're the newest person, you do lots of duties, and then the, you have an expectation that the people after you 
will take the slack off you for duties. Exactly. So when it doesn't happen, it, it certainly probably wouldn't have wouldn't have helped that kind of integration side of it. Um, the non-combatant rule was removed in 1992, and would you have seen any kind of major changes following that, or was it kind of did your own career sort of remain sort of the same, or did, did it affect it really? It didn't make any difference to me no. anyway, uh, personally, because as I say, I was in administration, so uh, I wasn't interested in going to the battalion or anything. Yeah, at that you stage. already were specialised. Yeah. yeah, so I was happy with where I was. Yeah, and I was in um, MITS at the time, which was the IT uh, section, so we were kind of a little bit out of uh, out of the mainstream as well at that stage. But um, definitely, like as I said, when Mary Robinson became president, the commander in chief, you know, women were now allowed to do guard of honours. Um, we had trousers that we could do the guard of honours with. Um, we they started taking um, air corps pilots, female air corps pilots in. Um, I think the female cadets and uh, recruits and that were allowed now go to different corps, you know, they sort of opened up a lot more than had been before. Uh, um, overseas, I suppose, opened up uh, because prior to that, the overseas appointments were very limited. Um, you know, for officers anyway, you could be assistant adjutant and pay officer or assistant QM or assistant ops. That was literally it. But I think after um, in the 90s, then that kind of opened up and a lot more opportunities prevailed. Uh, and I think people got more chances at courses. Yeah, you know. I, I think the, the big thing that happened in 92 when the women became combatant was that anyone who hadn't done an NCO's course or further were sent back for further training because they felt that we hadn't been given sufficient training in our, you know, the first group of women. Yeah. So we had a few girls, I think Katrina Morris had to go back and do a few weeks of, which was sounds crazy that a, here we are trained soldiers for 12 years and then all of a sudden we discovered they're not trained soldiers, you know, so that was probably a... And what kind of things were they doing when they were just, just further... I'd say it was probably a two to three star course without the poison etiquette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the poise was taken out of it. To that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Katrina found it actually quite tough. I think she'd be treated like a soldier maybe for the first time ever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that didn't happen for us in, uh, because... No, because we had done NCOs courses. Yeah, you know like I did my NCOs course um, with two other girls, Ursula Holly and Trisha O'Shaughnessy. The three of us did our NCOs course in 1983. Wow. So like we were literally only in. No. And uh, it was a big shock because... Now, <laughs> it, there were two platoons of men with three women and our platoon sergeant was adamant that we weren't good enough to be on the NCO's course and he was going to do everything in his power to get us off of it, oh. which made mm. us much more <laughs> determined to stay. Yes. Yeah. And did we have to fight every step of the way for those three months? <laughs> yeah, it was, and, you know, came up against, well, this one particular sergeant was very adamant that we shouldn't, we didn't deserve to be on the course because we were women. women. Mm. And I remember being told by the Sergeant Major at the time that um, I actually got the highest marks on the course of the two platoons, but they weren't giving me first place because it would bring down the tone. Mm -hmm. you wow. know, if a woman could do this, well, then the training mustn't be very good. 
God, that's obviously with, with the the advent of the years. Looking back, that's 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 shocking. Like you know, but but I suppose. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, it makes the achievement of of you know becoming an NCO and that kind of thing like all the more um, impressive that you had to deal with such blatant misogyny, essentially. But I think like we definitely were very conscious of all the time uh, being the first and having to make way for other women coming after us. So we were very determined, I think. Yeah, absolutely, because you felt if you didn't succeed, then you would be setting back for years the next women that were coming up after you yeah. because someone would say, oh, sure, we tried that and should they weren't able yeah. couldn't do the NCOs course or they couldn't do the young officers course or whatever. And I remember on our NCOs course, um, they told us they'd give us help with the tactics because they were going to be very difficult in Kilworth. And when we found out what the help was, that we'd hand our packs to the lads, we wouldn't do it. And of course, us being going by the book 100%, we packed our Backpacks <laughs> as they should be packed, mm. not realizing that all the lads had pillows in theirs. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> and you the dry. Ursula Holly is a tiny, tiny, tiny woman, and the poor thing, when she put on the pack, she <laughs> ended up falling backwards. Oh God! Because of the weight of it, mm. you know. Yeah. But we were more determined than ever to do it as it should be done, and again, we were paving the way for. The girls coming behind us. That's, that's fantastic. That's yeah. that's a, and that's a really good insight as well into your own kind of self perception at the time as well, which is kind of important to to document. I I, I think. And what about yourself? Uh, had you had a similar experience? Uh, I did. My NCOs course as a lone woman with thirty odd men, um, and uh, it was an interesting experience because I think the the biggest thing I took from it was that all day you were part of the team. All day it was shared experience. And then at night, you went to your own billet on your own, and you couldn't, even if you had a problem, you couldn't, con you know, you can't, you couldn't wander and say, "How do I do? I don't understand." And it became, especially during, we, we did a month in Kilworth during the tactics, and it felt, you know, it's such a, it's such a bonding experience during the day. You're you're, you're being abused all day, but you're, you know, you're getting through it. And then it just disappeared, you know. And you're always late because your accommodation is usually always the furthest away. They they fall in outside their block, and you have to always make it to. If there's <laughs> any changes, you're the last. You're the to last know. to know. Yeah, yeah, you turn up in the wrong thing. Um, th there was one incident at the very start of my NCOs course where um, there was a kit inspection, um, and the men always were having their kit inspection first, and this was at night time, and I was sort of like. Quarter past eight, quarter past nine, quarter past, you know, and I said, maybe they've forgotten about me. So I took all my kit back off the bed, put on my nightdress <laughs> <laughs> and got into bed, right? Next thing, knock at the door and we have a captain and a sergeant there <laughs> waiting. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. And I'm in my nightdress. I put it all away. Will I bring it back out again? They're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> because you're on your own and you really you have have I been forgotten about it so, so that's what I found the, the isolation and I see now whenever they're bringing in recruit platoons they're being very careful that there are a group of women yes. 
Yeah. Because I think that's, that's very important. it's really important, you know. And it was very funny because I was talking to the agent the last day and he was saying about, talking about, you know, the women in the army. He's going, oh, that's so unusual. They took in 40 women. Like, they, they're hard to do that now. And I said, but they're still doing it. He goes, they're taking in 40 women. I said, no, they're taking in 40 men. Yes. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a platoon of men. Yeah. But we don't have a platoon of women. Yeah. We're not getting enough women to join anyway. But, uh, you know, so I actually feel that they're doing it right. We need women to feel supported within that group. And I think if you, if you put one or two into a platoon of men, you lose the shared, you lose yeah. the talking about it all day, the guess what happened, yeah. I couldn't do, I could do. So I think it's a good move. It, it seems a bit strange that we don't have women in male platoons, but I think it's better that we yeah. have more women in one platoon, you know, mixed with men, yes. but keep the groups, yeah. keep yeah. the number of women in a platoon high. Um, so we mentioned a little bit earlier overseas service. Um, can you tell me a little bit about experiences or what the situation was with overseas at the time? Or um, Well, I suppose for uh, my class were commissioned in 1982 and uh, automatically you'd start applying for overseas because, you know, you were single and it was very exciting. And, um, and there where a few of the female officers were allowed overseas between 1982 and 1984, I think, or five, um, generally assistant adjutant to the hills, and maybe one girl would go. And again, as Paula was saying there, like, it's, you know, we all did it. We were all used to being on our own, really. I don't think I ever served in a unit that there was another female in, but... Um, it was quite isolating as well. And then they stopped uh, for some reason and we weren't allowed to go overseas uh, until 1989. And so at that stage, I was, whatever, seven years commissioned and I was on my first trip. Whereas my classmates would all have probably had two or three trips at that stage. Um, so we were always kind of delayed. But um, I went to Nakora as the assistant QM uh, absolutely super trip, delighted to be over there and, you know, all the experience of working in different nationalities. Um, and then I came back and my next trip was in 1995 up to the hills with the 78th Battalion. And again, assistant adjutant that time and pay officer. Pay these officer are great. Both, both to South <laughs> Lebanon as well. As for exactly. Yeah. At home. And well, at that stage, there was very little else. Like there yeah. was no very few other missions, I suppose, at the time. And um, but it was a fantastic opportunity. But in comparison to your male colleagues, you know, they would have had a lot more opportunities earlier. And this is what I was saying for a lot of uh, women, because the opportunities for overseas came later on in your career, that a lot of people had kind of at that stage got married and maybe had children. So it wasn't as easy for them to leave. And at that time, there was no family friendly policies. There was no three month trips where you could share. Um, so for a lot of women, I think in Defence Forces, it was problematic to have overseas service. Yeah, sure. for yeah. me it was anyway. Um, I applied in 1982 and because they were taking only two women at a, a time, I didn't get that trip. And after that, then I got married and I had my children and I looked after my mother. So between it all, I never got the opportunity again. And I suppose it is one regret that I hadn't the experience. Um, and I would have liked to have done it, but it, there was never a right time. And I suppose now, looking and seeing the family-friendly trips, 
I, I could have done that. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So it's great that they're that so it, that it's moved, moved on, on to yeah, some bit, exactly. and, and there's some recognition given to those yeah. to those difficulties. Yeah. Um, my husband was also in the army, um, and he did seven trips. I didn't do any trips, <laughs> and it really is exactly as you say. Um, my daughter was born in 1985, and. There was just no way I was ever going to leave her. <laughs> that was that's just and I and I I I admire greatly the women who can do that. I just just wasn't for me. Um, but as I said, you know, it, it actually allowed him to do as many trips as he wanted, and he ended up doing seven and, and loved all of them. Um, I've been fortunate enough to get three trips overseas, um, three very short trips overseas. Whenever I go out to do the repat briefs with the the overseas missions, and I got to visit Kosovo, um, I was out in Syria, and I was in Lebanon. So it was a, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, to be out in Lebanon because my husband had this is where he'd served most of his trips and the one thing he asked me to bring back was mingi bread <laughs> <laughs> which I had to get in the cookhouse and bring back to him because this is you know I don't know if it actually lived up to the, the expectation that whenever we right back but uh, it was just so good to be able to 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 put into perspective all the places that he had been and all the places that older people have been and to get a very small taste whenever people would talk about their overseas trips of you know the lay, the lie of the land the where they are the what I do and you know it was it was fascinating so I was I have been blessed that I got to see three mission areas I'm not so sure that I would have been able to do six months because I do remember when I went out to Lebanon that they brought us up from Beirut airport in the back of Moags with helmets on and there I was with my purple trolley dolly suitcase <laughs> and you know <laughs> and they brought us up and I just thought right this is this is this is real this is real we're in you know and they had the you know lights off and there was the IED, IED threat at that time um, so whenever we arrived in, in, in the camp I remember going Sunday, Monday, Tuesday and I counted the five days thinking I'll be out here on Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was a good idea that my husband did all the trips. But as I said, I was very lucky at being able to see the mission areas, you know. Fantastic. And that, that's, that's all really, really interesting, the, the way that the considerations have moved on and, and the, the introduction of family-friendly trips to try and facilitate, um, you know, people with families and that kind of a thing. Just regard to kind of looking back on your careers, do you have any particular standout moments that, that really stick out in your mind as, as major milestones in your careers? Um, I don't know if it's a milestone, but um, my move to Athlone 13 years ago, coming back to where I had started, um, was a little bit scary. Um, but it was, a, it was a good decision. My husband decided, the, the joke in our family was, he said he would do 25 years in Donegal if we do the next 25 years in Athlone. He was an Athlone man and I just never thought we'd still be together 25 years later. So we moved back to Athlone again and uh, within, I think, four weeks of moving to Athlone and I'm sitting in the office with no clients because obviously I'm, you know, I'm new to the area, people don't know me and I don't have all you know, the work that I had been doing before I left Donegal. And I was just really questioning how I made the right decision. And I was driving into work and on the, the news on the radio that Lifford Military Post had closed. They had closed Lifford and Rock Hill. And I thought I made the right decision because, you know what I mean, all of a sudden the light was clear. Now, to this day, people in Lifford are, are 
you know, convinced that I had inside information <laughs> <laughs> and that I jumped before everyone else was pushed. Um, but uh, that's 13 years ago. And in the 13 years that I've been in that loan, um, I've worked exclusively with the PSS. And I do believe I've made a difference. You know, I always say I have never been a, you know, a fully combatant soldier. I haven't, you know, gone out to war. But I do believe I've saved lives. And I think that's really, really important. You know, and, I, and I've, if I'm here today, I'm here today as an ambassador for the PSS because I do believe that our, our work is important and that the move 13 years ago was a really good move, you know. And actually, speaking of the PSS, it was actually a female officer, Gay Fagan, um, who's now Gay Humphreys and Paula Cox, who would have started all that yeah. PSS back <clears throat> in the early 80s. And they were just, like really leaders in the field. They were way ahead of their time. And to just remind remind listeners at home, just, I think we had said it earlier, but that's the personnel support service yeah. within the defence forces, which is a which is a support for, for for members that require it. And has been fantastic and has grown from strength to strength. Yeah. They would have been instrumental in the setting up of the personnel support yeah. services. Mm-hmm. So there were so many areas where women really excelled, you know, in... Uh, I know it's kind of a cliche to say the caring side of things, but they, you know, they are very, very good in that area. So yeah. it's a fantastic service. It is. Wonderful. And what about yourself, uh, CS, just from looking back on your career, any kind of major things? Um, I suppose I never kind of set a time limit of how long I'd stay in the army. And it just kept going on and going <laughs> on. And then in um, 1996, 97, um, my mother got very sick and she needed full-time care. So John and I were, he was still serving at the time as well. And we, we were trying to decide what w- would we do, which one of us would give up. And John said, look, I have my 21 done. You haven't. So maybe you should stay. So I, I think that was the best decision that, that was ever made. I stayed and... I did my senior NCOs course and I became the first female company sergeant. And I think my role as a CS in command headquarters, which is now one brigade headquarters, um, I feel a bit like Paula, but I think a lot of people came to me with their problems and I felt I made a difference. Mm. You know, and I suppose I had plenty of experience at that stage. So um, I loved my job there and I'm so glad that I was able to stay for, for the full term until I became 60 <laughs> in January. <laughs> you know, so that was a turning point for me, I think, uh, choosing to stay. Wow, yeah. fantastic. Um, I think, you know, I probably couldn't say... Um, a bad word about my career or my time in the Defence Forces because mm-hmm. it's always been, you know, very positive. Um, and there was so many opportunities that I were, was given in the Defence Forces. Um, for example, you know, I was the first to go to university um, as a female officer and that was unbelievable to be given your education. Um, and then I got the opportunity to train the second and last female platoon of recruits which was absolutely incredible actually Olive Reddy was with me in that and um, 
And that was, I think, a really one of the high points of my career, I think, because now you had the opportunity to actually, you know, mould uh, new people into the defence forces and be responsible for their training and making sure that when they left, that they were equipped to deal with whatever the defence force would throw at them. And of course, there was a certain amount of, well, we're going to show them now that we're going to be the best platoon. And there was one or two other male platoons, I think, at the time in the third battalion and maybe, um, I don't know, the Cav squadron maybe or whatever. But um, so everything we were doing, whatever the lads were doing, we were doing that plus more, (laughs) you know, and we wanted to be the best. And uh, I remember uh, we went off, we did adventure training, we were abseiling, we were, oh, everything. And we went to the Glen, we did all the tactics and we marched back from the Glen, the first female platoon, I think, to walk back from the Glen. And we had um, Ginger O'Leary's daughter, Christine, Christine, who was... Five foot nothing, I'd say. <laughs> and her backpack was down below her knees and she walked the whole way and everybody, the whole platoon was just, we're going to show everybody that we are as good as, you know, the male platoons. And um, we had a passing out parade and it was just unbelievable. The drill that we did, I think Sergeant Jones might have been the main drill instructor at the time, but the formations that they did on the square like were unbelievable. And that sense of achievement and pride in seeing those girls uh, go on and, you know, and the same thing, they have exactly the same camaraderie that your platoon had all those years before them. And they remain very close and they have all the celebrations, the anniversaries and that. Uh, So that was one of the big um, high points. And then I suppose I got the opportunity to do um, a postgraduate in computer science in UCC. And so that led me on to a different career path in the Defence Forces. Um, and I went into what was MITS, which was the Military Information Technology section, which was a really, um, you know, way ahead of its time again. And we had some fantastic um, officers and NCOs working in that unit. Um, and I ended up then, MITS was taken over by the Signal Corps, which became the CIS Corps, the Communica- Communications Information Services Corps. And I spent the remainder of my career in CIS and it was fantastic, great opportunities, fabulous people to work with. Um, And that led me then to another career opportunity six years ago when um, I got an offer of a job as the IT manager in the Viva Stadium. And I left and uh, went to work there and I'm still there. And, you know, my army training, you know, enabled me to get that job and to be able to do it. You know, so um, there's been loads of high points and all very positive. And so on foot of those of those milestones and those great high points, to anybody thinking of joining, I suppose male or female or anybody thinking of joining at all, what have you, have you anything to say to them or like what would you advise to anybody? I'd say I absolutely have no regrets and I always counted the army as a second family and I know contracts and things are different now for people joining up. I believe myself was the best decision I ever made and the sense of pride that I've always felt wearing my uniform I I just and I suppose I always felt I made a little part of history as well so uh, very positive for me my experience and I'm very thankful to the army for everything that I have and for the skills it gave me to deal with everything in my life 
and I think they they take you anywhere in the world. So for me, I would say join. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say that it is a, an absolutely brilliant job for most people. Um, it takes a lot of commitment. Um, for young women who now join the army to have a family and then have the the burden, I suppose, of career courses and overseas and mandatory selections, that has to be considered as part of the package whenever you now join the army. It's just not, gee, I think I want to be a soldier. There's a whole lot more. Um, life is still easier for men. Men can still travel overseas like my husband traveled overseas because that's the nature of, I think, the nature of the beast. Um, I could 100% say that I've, I'll have 40 years on on the 5th of June. Absolutely enjoyed nearly all of it. It's, 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 I could have been a guard and I could have been a nurse and I think I chose the right career. I think it's, it has given me um, a strength that I think only women in the army understand that whenever you walk into a room and it's full of people, you're never intimidated by that group of people. You don't think that, oh, there's a whole pile of men here, what am I going to do? And it's something that you just notice as you get older that you realize you're never intimidated. Um, my tennis friends would also say I'm always the boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whenever we arrange tennis, it's I arrange it, we put them into teams, who's playing with who. So I think you automatically become someone that will take charge yeah. very quickly. I would highly recommend a career in the Army. Um, as a member of the PSS, whenever we... Whenever they take in recruits at the very start, I see what comes in the gate day one, day two. And it's amazing to watch, even in the first two weeks, you know, that person mature. And two, you know, maybe a week before they're passing out, we do a, a, a stress management course with them. And all these people have matured into completely different people. They're walking taller, you know, they're, they have so many more skills. So I think it's a really good career. But it's one to be considered and not just, gee, I think I want to be a soldier. <laughs> I think that's a, very, that's a very good point. I think, yeah. Yeah, ex yeah, excellent point. Yeah, because there are a lot of things to consider. And I think for us, like we didn't have any role models. Like there was nobody in senior positions that you could look up to. You know, this saying now, if I see it, I can be it. Well, there was none of that for us. And I think nowadays the um, Defence Forces probably has more work to do. There's one general, well, she's retiring um, shortly. Um, and then after that, there's probably a handful of other women in maybe left and colonels. Um, so it is difficult. And I suppose the Defence Force has to ask itself why there are so, so few women. Like, oh, I'd say the majority of women in the first 10 years are probably all gone now with very few left. Why is that? You know, so they need to, I suppose, look at, as you were saying, the obstacles that do uh, present itself for women that maybe aren't there yeah. in as much uh, of a predicament as the males. But I would highly recommend uh, the Defence Forces. I think the opportunities you get, the colleagues that you make, the friends that you make, the training that you, you get is second to none. And even if it's not going to be a lifelong career for you, what, what, even a few years in Defence Forces will always stand to you. And you'll always have um, people, you know, whatever walk of life you go to, you'll have ex-military people. Mm -hmm. And there is that camaraderie and a network 
that they look out for each other, even when you're retired. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. So I think it's a fantastic, you know, very positive experience. Yeah. Wonderful. So uh, at the end of that, thank you all so much uh, for a fantastic insight into your experiences and, and careers. That really, really was excellent. And thanks very, very much for speaking to us. Thank you very much. It was <laughs> a lovely you. experience. Lovely to reminisce. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, guys. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media channels and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast will be back soon with new episodes. So until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.